The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. John was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they went and saw where Jesus was staying and stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. Then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Kephas, which is translated Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, everybody. Good to be back with you. As you know, I was on vacation for this past week, and you had a guest priest last weekend. And people have been asking how it was on vacation. Amazing. I was in sweatpants the entire seven days. And when you wear sweatpants for your entire vacation, you know it's a good vacation. So, so praise the Lord. I was in Sacramento hanging out with my parents doing absolutely nothing. So praise the Lord. Uh, before we dive into these amazing, rich readings. I could have went 50 different ways. So I'm only going to go 48 ways. In this one. But uh, the calendars for this year came in. Uh, so please grab your church calendar. It helps us keep track of, uh, of the liturgical cycle, the liturgical year. And so before you leave, there's a whole stack of them back there. And so be sure to grab them. And also, I'd be remiss not to mention that today's one of the people we're offering Mass for is Tom Rousen. It is, uh, we're offering this Mass for your birthday, Tom. It is his 95th birthday. <laughs> Praise the Lord, Tom. So. I bring that up because Tom... He's one of those parishioners that does everything in the church. And we have, we have a solid core of people where you don't really notice what they do until they stop doing it. And then you're like, what the heck's happening? And so it's one of those silent people that just kind of goes about doing his work silently so that we can have a, keep the church running. So, Tom, thank you. And as we offer Mass, we thank God for creating you. They may have many, many more years uh, to come with your family. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Catholic trivia time. Why does the Pope live in Rome? Why is the center of Catholicism, the administrative heart of the Catholic Church, 
is in that city, and it's Vatican City, as we know. It's its, it's, its own city-state within the city of Rome. Why does the Pope live there rather than, say, you think of Christianity? Why not in Jerusalem? So when someone asks you, why does the Pope live in Rome? Why is headquarters there? Do you guys know why? Because that is where Peter died. That is where he is. That's why when you go to this very day, you go there, the massive church, St. Peter's Basilica, which is the largest church building in the entire world. And it sits over the tomb of Peter himself. That is why the Pope lives there. And it's beautiful when you go there and you see it today. It's marvelous, you know, the, the beautiful, massive dome to kind of give you a sense of scale. Remember, you can fit the Statue of Liberty inside that dome. In its pedestal and all the way up there, you can fit the Statue of Liberty in there. Or to give you another idea of scale, you can put a NASA space shuttle in that dome. You can take off from St. Peter's Square if you wanted to. Right? It'll destroy the dome, but you can take off from there. Right? But it's massive. And around the dome of St. Peter's, which was designed by Michelangelo, probably the greatest artist in human history. And I say that not just hyperbolically, but people argue he's probably the best artist we've ever, that humanity has ever produced. Around that rim of the dome, in Greek and in Latin, there's a powerful phrase of why the Pope is there. Tu es Petros, et super hunc edificable ecclesiam meam. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And you have the high altar where only the Pope can celebrate Mass, and below the high altar, there are the very bones of Peter himself, encased in these airtight containers so that the bones won't deteriorate anymore. And there's a little chapel right below the altar of, of the Pope. It's a little tiny chapel. It's, it's, you're like sardines. And so as, as I've mentioned before, I was, I was privileged to, to be ordained in St. Peter's Basilica beneath that massive dome. And then the next day, uh, we had, and I was a deacon, because remember, as priests, we get ordained deacons first. We make our promises celibacy, prayer, and obedience, right? So we, that's our first step. And so when I was ordained there, the next day, I had reserved that chapel below the Pope's altar. It's a tiny little chapel, and it's hot, and it's humid, because you're in the middle of Rome, it's, it's humid. It's, 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 it's horrible, right? And the chapels were tiny, like, packed like sardines. My family, my friends were there. And I assisted Mass for the first time as a deacon. And with the cool thing, what I remember is that, of course, my dad was there. That was the first time I, I recall my dad weeping. He was crying. It was beautiful, because especially as, as a son, I, I'd never seen him cry before. And for a son to see his dad cry, because for our sons, our dads are usually our, our superheroes. Right? They do everything. They provide for the family. They protect the family. And to see him cry, I said, wow, this is a powerful moment. And it was. To be there next to the bones of Peter himself. And we see him. You are Peter. And when you're there and you're, by, you're in St. Peter's Basilica, you feel the weight 
of 2,000 years of Christian history. You feel the weight of it. And not only the weight of 2,000 years of Christian history, but even human history. Because Rome is one of the most ancient cities in the world. It's been inhabited thousands of years before that. And you feel the ancient quality of our beautiful church. You are Peter, Jesus tells him. This is the moment that Jesus meets Peter for the very first time. Can you imagine why Peter followed Jesus? He left everything to follow Jesus. So it says here that he encounters him, right? Andrew first encounters Jesus, and John the Baptist is there. And when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says a phrase. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, they would have immediately, when, when they encountered Jesus, and Andrew brought this information to, to, to Peter, his brother, he says, we have found the Lamb of God. Now that phrase, every single Catholic should know and immediately recognize. When do you hear that phrase? It's by design. It's not, we, we don't just flippantly put it into Mass in a random place. But notice when you say that. And every single Catholic, no matter what language you go to Mass in, you go to Mass in Latin, same thing. The priest at a pivotal moment, at the moment that you're about to do the most sacred thing you're going to do your entire week, by the way. You're about to receive Jesus in Holy Communion. You're kneeling down in prayer. There's a moment of silence there. And the priest will turn to you, again, no matter what language, you go to Mass in. You go to the Latin Mass, even. The priest will look at you and say, holding up the host in front of you, Eche años de... You go to Mass in Spanish, same thing. The priest will turn to you right before you receive Holy Communion. He'll hold it up and he'll say, Este es el Cordero de Dios. Or in English, right? You hear the words. Behold the Lamb of God. That phrase is jam-packed with centuries of meaning. And I want to take the time and I want to break down that phrase. So that way, hopefully after this homily, after this Mass, when you hear that phrase, you will hear it again afresh, new. And it will not, you, you, you will not just say it, or we will not just say it, flippantly, or just lip service to it. Behold the Lamb of God. For the first century Jew, we must first appreciate that they had in their faith, in Jewish faith, the notion of animal sacrifice. We must first penetrate that mystery, that the Jewish people had a custom of offering animals to die. Again, because we have to appreciate this because in the 21st century, we have a whole different concept of animals, don't we? You put little sweaters on our animals. <laughs> you put cute little hats on our animals. They sleep in our beds as animals. So we love our animals. They're part of our family. But in the first century for the Jewish people, they slaughtered animals. Jump back to Genesis 22. Let's go to Genesis. 
Enter Abraham, the father of our faith. And I want to quote you something from, from Genesis. So God just instructed Abraham to offer the most precious thing in his life, his son Isaac. Take your son Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to offer him and to kill him as a sacrifice to me. And he does so. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, now read what you're about to hear. See it through the lens of Jesus. Watch what happened. You begin to see the parallels. Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb that we're going to kill and sacrifice? Abraham knows that he's going to kill his son in a few moments, but he doesn't say so. He says, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And then a pivotal moment becomes, when you continue on reading Genesis 22, Abraham takes his knife, and just as he's about to slaughter his own son, God stops him. And he says, no, Abraham, no. Isaac would survive then God provided an animal to be offered in that spot. Notice the language. God will provide the lamb. Genesis 22. Jump now to Exodus 12. As we know the story well, Moses now is entrusted to take the Jewish people who are enslaved in Egypt to free them from the powers of Pharaoh and to lead them through the desert for 40 years and to eventually reach which is now modern day Israel. He says, I want you to go there to the promised land that I'm going to give you. And so in order to, to entice Pharaoh to set them free, God, in his final act, sends the angel of death upon the land of Egypt. Because he says, I'm going to send this angel of death and I will strike down the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But in order to keep the Jewish people safe now, I want you to do something. And God instructs Moses to share with the Jewish people this line. And I'll quote Exodus 12. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. All of the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. So notice what just happens here. So on the night before the angel of death would come, they're all, the Jewish people, they're supposed to gather in their homes, all take an unblemished lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood of the lamb. Again, as Christians, do you, are, you, are you seeing the parallels here when Jesus comes eventually, a few centuries later? So they take the blood of this lamb and they sprinkle and they cover their doorposts with blood. So now it's just oozing and dripping blood on their doors. 
So that marks them as safe. So the angel of death now comes, slaughters the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the doorpost of the Jewish people, they are saved through the blood of the Lamb. Now let's jump to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. And I'll quote. This is the instructions how to celebrate Yom Kippur. By the way, if you have any trouble sleeping, I recommend reading Leviticus. It's like reading a law journal. It's boring. Yom Kippur is the most holiest day for the Jewish people, even now. It's, Yom Kippur simply means the Day of Atonement. And this is the instructions that the Jewish people are given by God. So God tells Moses, I want you guys to do this every single year. Aaron shall take the two he goats. So Aaron's the son of Moses. Take the two he goats and let them stand before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he shall place lots upon the two goats, one marked for the Lord and the other marked for Azazel. So there's two goats now. They bring in two goats. One is marked for the Lord. And then one marks for Azazel, which is the, uh, the forest. Aaron shall bring forward the goat designated by Lot. They chose randomly for the Lord, which is to offer as a sin offering. While the goat designated by Lot for Azazel shall be left standing alive before the Lord to make expiation with it and to send it off to the wilderness for Azazel. It's at this moment, so one goat survives. And then the other goat, they thrust on this one little goat all of the sins of the people. So all of my sins, your sins, if you're Jewish people, the sins of the entire nation, all of the guilt is thrust upon this little animal. And then this animal is led off into the, into the wilderness to die in atonement for those sins of the nations, our sins. And this is where we get that phrase, scapegoat. It comes from Leviticus chapter 16. Because the scapegoat, all of the sins, right? What do we, when we hear that phrase, scapegoat, it says that we blame everything on that goat. It's the goat's fault. And so the goat now must die. Ergo, vis-a-vis, scapegoat. And then, Aaron shall then offer Another animal, a bull of sin offering, to make expiation for himself and his household. He shall slaughter the bull of sin offering. See, they're taking all of these animals, offering it to God now in expiation for their own guilt and their sins. Enter now Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 speaks of a coming Messiah. The Messiah who would enter into the world, whom our Jewish brothers and sisters are still actually waiting for the Messiah. They don't recognize Jesus as the one who came. Isaiah 53 now reads, and I'll quote. It was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Now here's the key line. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. All of this background now comes to a pinnacle moment. John the Baptist enters into the scene, who was the last of the prophets. All the Jewish people are waiting for the coming Messiah. They've been sacrificing animals in the Holy Temple for centuries. And then all of a sudden now, Jesus appears. John the Baptist sees him, and he yells out those words, Behold the Lamb of God. Do you see now why it took only but a single phrase for the disciples now to follow Jesus? Because they immediately recognize, oh, all that we've been doing has been in preparation for this moment. And so in an excitement, they, they follow Jesus, and then now they go to Peter. Peter, we found the Messiah. We found the Lamb of God. And that's all it took, that phrase, for Peter now to leave everything. To leave his family, to leave his business, to leave his homeland, to leave everything which he loved. He left it all. And he began to follow Jesus. All the way, in fact, now, think about it. Jerusalem, where it is geographically in the world, Here's Jerusalem, and here's Rome. It's 1,300 miles in a straight line from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, where Peter himself now would eventually die in the year 65, where he would be buried in a, a makeshift tomb, where we would build this massive church, with now the Holy Father, we're the successor of St. Peter himself. Now do you see why that single phrase, Behold the Lamb of God, was enough to allow Peter to offer his own life in sacrifice. Because what now Abraham pointed to, that God himself would provide the Lamb of, of sacrifice, is accomplished. God himself will send his own son into the world out of love for humanity. And he will die on that cross. The true sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, through whose blood now is shed, which echoes Genesis 22, echoes Exodus 12, Leviticus 16, and Isaiah 53. That through the shedding of his blood, you and I are washed clean. How could not Peter leave everything behind? He knew what God was about to do. And in that response to love now of God sending his own beloved son into the world, Peter and you and I must respond in that same intense way. Because through the blood of the Lamb, you and I have become white as snow.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.